0: Hi, I'm Mark Blundell, and you're listening to the Everything F1 podcast.
1: And it's lights out and away we go! As Verstappen goes into Turn 1 and goes past the Mercedes! Oh! And Hamilton has gone from second in the race! Try again this time on the inside
2: and comes touch! Verstappen is out of the race and that's a big crash! Ocon wins the Hungarian Grand Prix!
1: Russell is still on provisional pole! Hello and welcome to the Everything F1 podcast with me James Tiller and alongside me from the Everything F1 team today we do have Connor. Hi Connor how are you?
2: Hi James yeah I'm great thank you looking forward to interviewing Mark Blundell today.
1: Well you've you've done it for me you've introduced the man himself a special guest that we're interviewing today that is F1 and Le Mans winner Mark Blundell. Hi Mark how are you? I'm very well guys
0: thanks for having me on the show.
1: Yeah, no problem at all. The pleasure is all ours. For any of the, the the younger Formula One fans out there, can you kind of give a brief kind of one-minute introduction about who you are and what you do or what you have done in the motorsport world?
0: Uh, if it's Formula One related, it would be based off of test driver, reserve driver 1989-90 for the Williams Grand Prix team, then Formula One driver for Brabham, then test and reserve for McLaren ninety two, Ligier, ninety three, Tyrrell ninety four, ending up with McLaren in nineteen ninety five. So a few of those teams are no longer around, but for the older generation, they will remember them.
1: I'll say, Mark, you were you were probably one of the drivers in my formative years of of starting to enjoy Formula One. I was around about. Well, it would have been 9 nine, ten when you started kind of, you know, in, in for McLaren and whatnot. So yeah, I, I remember the name and I remember you racing. So I, I absolutely do remember your career. I know Connor is, is a big historian of the sport as well. So yeah, I'm sure he knows, even though he's a youth, he does know quite a bit about you. I,
0: it'd have to be a historian to know my name. So there you go.
1: <laughs> come on, come on. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> well, before we get into the interview, we are Everything F1. You can find us on all our social platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and TikTok. You can also find us on our website www.everythingf1.com and of course you're listening to us or watching us on our podcast itself and we'd love it if you hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast streaming service to get all of our latest podcasts in your earlobes as soon as they drop. Now let's get into the meat and two veg of this interview. Mark, what got you into motorsport? What what kind of inspired you to, to become a driver?
0: Well, listen, I started on two wheels. So I started in the world of motocross, or some people would say scrambling, which is a, an old word for it. But that predominantly is where I got my sort of need for speed based off the fact I was going to school in a rural area. That was also based on the fact that when I went to school, which wasn't very often, I wouldn't advocate that to any younger generation, but that was <laughs> the case. And my late father was in the car business. So basically he sold second-hand cars. So my right. passion for cars was there from a very young age. I was one of the kids who used to sit in the back of the car going along and could name every headlight and rear light on a car from a distance and, you know, quite fanatical. So the speed element and motor racing didn't start until a little bit later on, but that was sort of 17 years old when I first got into a Formula Ford 1600. Never went the conventional route of go-karts. That's kind of, yeah, that's where the first sort of stepping stone was was done.
2: Mark, I'd love to know, how did, motoc- did motocross help you during your career? Or did the lack of karting experience affect you at all?
0: No, for me, no effects whatsoever. And I think there's a few of us who have been down the bike route. Good friend, Damon Hill, who didn't do motocross, but did road racing. Several other people have made that transition. And i tell you for why. is because if you've ever been on the lineup of a, of a motocross race, you know, there's about 30 of you elbow to elbow. So, and you're all funneled into a very tight turn one. So, it gives you a very instinctive, competitive sort of edge. I'm not, you know, never was concerned about going wheel to wheel with anybody because I'd go, you know, toe to toe and elbow to elbow. So, that wasn't a factor. And the biggest thing is balance. Sounds kind of crazy when you're uh, strapped into a race car, but balance is a very important element. And, you know, if you were at one with a bike, if you could get that same sort of feedback and be at one with a race car, then you were halfway there. So, for, for me, motocross is a great grounding. And, I would also go on and add that you know probably wet weather conditions where I was you know normally very strong in in whatever the case may be race or practice qualifying was down to my motocross experience because I would I would take lines that were a little bit unconventional and I mean that in a way that you know motocross you'd come to the corner and you come to it the next lap round and it was changed and that would make you look at the race circuit in a slightly different way so I'd always be looking for the little high spots where there was less surface water and I could use that to brake and turn in. And uh, you know, a lot of few journalists that I know, even from back in those days, were also commenting on the fact that I was taking unconventional lines. So, yeah, motocross served me well.
1: Good. And when you did actually move into kind of Formula Ford, you were successful quite quickly, straight away, in fact. How did you find the kind of crossover into cars then? Was it was it just like na- a natural talent to drive four wheels instead of two?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was lucky. Took to it like a duck to water and had no problems with getting up to speed and got up to speed quite quickly. As I say, driving the car in a race was slightly different because, you know, a lot of people can go and do a lap time, but whether they can do it with another 26 people around them is another thing, and that's the kind of thing that you have to get up to speed with is that competitive element. But we did a lot of races at the beginning of my career because we came from motocross again, and, you know, you would do four races in one day, and we could never kind of work out why Formula Ford 1600 back then there was like three races on, and each were 10 laps, and we're like, why is someone just entered for one race when there's three of the same race on in the same day? Because basically it was an entry fee mm-hmm. and a little bit more fuel and tires. So we said, like, we'll just go do all three of them. And we're yeah. here. Why not? And that's why we sort of, you know, went off to go and accumulate a huge amount of miles. And, and with that, we got a lot of success. So we won a lot of races, had a lot of success, had a lot of accidents as well. That's a downside of doing more races. But, you know, mm-hmm. if you if you don't crash, more or less, you're not learning. So, you know, that's part and parcel.
1: And at this point, were your sights kind of always set on Formula One as as maybe an end goal or anything like that?
0: Not at all. I mean, you know, listen, when you step out into the, the world of motor racing at an early age and and there's sort of, you know, the bottom of the, the ladder, I don't think anybody can truly say that, you know, they've got objectives of getting to Formula One. You, you kind of just develop into a situation of you keep going the next rung of the ladder. And as you're getting closer and closer, you know, at some point it kind of dawns on you that, hey, this can actually be something that could turn out to be real. And my pathway was slightly different to some, although saying that a few very well-known names in Formula One did the same sort of pathway to get there. So, you know, sports cars was way before the single-seater side of Formula One never became reality. So, yeah, I don't think anybody in the right mind can start in motorsport at a young age and say I'm going to be a Formula One driver. I think that would be quite a you know, quite a sort of, I wouldn't say arrogant, I'd say it's a very confident answer.
1: <laughs> well, unless you max Verstappen, who was probably came out of the womb saying I was going to be a Formula One driver. That's, that's probably the only exception I think I can think of.
0: Yeah, well if he was talking coming out of the womb then he was exceptional, <laughs> but there you go. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Maybe I was being a bit silly. Oh no, sorry, carry on.
2: I'd just like to know, you spent a bit of time in sports cars during the group C era era of, of racing, was that what were they like to drive? Because I've heard so many stories about them being absolute beasts. And, and I've seen your lap around Le Mans in 1990 and you were really hanging it out. So what? just tell me what they were like to, to
0: drive. Uh, bizarrely, is a good friend of mine called Paul Tracy, who's a very well-known IndyCar driver who just posted on Instagram that lap. So, uh, yeah, making some comments about it. So it's still around to this day. Listen, I think Group C days were fantastic. Brilliant because there had a lot of manufacturers. Fantastic because because we had so many great drivers. As I say, that pathway that I took was the same for Michael Schumacher, for Frensen, for Benlinger, guys who got to Formula 1. So, you know, it was it was very competitive. And, yeah, they were beasts. There's no two ways about it. I think when we did the lap at Le Mans, we were at 1,100 horsepower plus. Very serious machinery. Mm. You know, I think we did 238 miles an hour with the chicanes in on the Mulsanne Strait. So, it give you some impression of how quick they were. But... Yeah, maybe a little bit agricultural in their sort of aerodynamics, but at the same time, you know, the uh, the Group C era was probably, for me, one of the best sports car generations to be involved with.
1: And you became the youngest pole sitter for Le Mans, Le Mans 24 Hours at that point, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, I, well, I don't know. I'm sure somebody might be able to do, uh, maybe Connor can do it if he's the historian, but believe I'm still the youngest pole sitter ever.
1: Uh, okay, wow, okay.
0: I mean, someone have to go double-check on that, but I think I'm still the youngest to ever sit in pole position as a, as a driver in age.
1: So how does that feel as a, as a young driver? And, and do you think that kind of gave you the... the was it the catalyst for you getting this seat in Formula 1? I
0: mean, it hadn't really sunk in by then in terms of the achievement on that side of things. It was also a big achievement back then because it was the first Japanese manufacturer ever to be on pole position so uh, in the history wow. of London. So it was a big thing for that. But I think it was supportive on going to F1, but not... Probably the be all and end all. I think that work was, uh, that work for me was being done at Williams when I was testing. So doing the test work in 8990, compared against the drivers in that generation for Williams and Boots and Patrese, and working with the likes of Renault and uh, that kind of thing, and with the the engineering staff at Williams. That that gave a great foundation for me to show my wares. And as I say, other teams were in pit lane back in those days when you're allowed to test. Mm. And you know, that was that was a brilliant sort of platform for young drivers to be able to Show what they could do,
1: and what was the feeling when you actually got called up to join F1? Then was it just a pure elation? Was it a dream come true?
0: Yeah, I mean it was it was brilliant at the time because you know as a driver got to F1 on merit and and succeeded in doing that, and at the same time, you know it was it was wonderful to have a full time Grand Prix seat, but in hindsight. I would have been better off to stay at Williams. And I and I'd sort of had that contract that was a multi-year agreement and I should have stayed there. Mm-hmm. I just didn't have enough expertise or experience around me to say, stay at Williams and, and wait and bide your time. Because bizarrely, when I left there, the first thing I did was call my friend Damon Hill and said, look, it's an opening. You need to get your backside down to Williams.
1: I wonder how that worked out for him.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, I know it worked out for Damon. He was world champion. So, yeah. you know, so th- th- that's the way the cookie crumbles. You know, yeah. And I went to Brabham. As I say, brilliant to get the deal done, but, you know, it wasn't so good for me then to understand that, wow, you know, I'm in a car which is not very competitive. It's going to be a tough task. I mean, back in those days, you used to get paid by something called a cheque. You know, cheques these days, I don't think the young generation even understand how to write one out. But, yeah, yeah, we, we got, you know, into a situation where twice the check bounced on me for salary and travel allowance and stuff like that. So, you know, those kind of things don't kind of happen anymore in Grand Prix, just unheard of, but still in my days, those
2: things were happening. Did you get to drive the active car before you left? I it?
0: did I've probably done more active miles in, in a Formula One car than any other driver there is today. Wow. Because I did all the active ride suspension development work for Williams and then I also carried on doing a lot of work at McLaren. So yeah, in terms of kilometers driven, yeah, I'd have a bet with probably any Grand Prix driver that exists today that I've done more miles than them, so yeah.
1: Did you prefer the active or passive suspension?
0: I mean, listen, the active car was something very special and impressive. It was getting to the stage where it was beyond the physicality of the driver because, you know, you'd rattle into a corner and it was impossible to to keep your foot hard down on the throttle without your head coming off your shoulder, so to speak. Because, wow. you know, when you took out the roll in the car and the aerodynamics are that efficient that you couldn't go around the corner quick enough and and the the reason for that is because you couldn't hold your foot down just because of the g even you know at times last corner at esteril the old esteril circuit in portugal we were over five and five and a bit g lateral load back in those days so you know it was quite impressive yeah
2: yeah just i mean i've always been fascinated by the uh, the active cars but what was it like going from developing and testing that to then driving the brabham with the yamaha engine in the back compared to the williams or the renault engine what what was that like, the difference in in speed and competitiveness? Again,
0: <laughs> all these little stories that relate to me in certain things where it's a little bit different. So even back in those days, 1991, I was contracted to Brabham, but I got invited to go back and test for Williams, and uh, which is kind of unheard of, yeah? Even though Damon had gone there as a test driver... Patrick Head and the team asked me to go back and test the FW14. They wanted some insight and they wanted to understand what I thought about a few things. So that's when the penny really dropped. And it dropped when we were at Imola and we'd done the Grand Prix and we tested, I think it was on the Tuesday after the Grand Prix, and I did this test for Williams. Luckily enough, Brabham allowed me to do it. I mean, in today's world, it would be unheard of, Mm. loaning out a driver in current Grand Prix season to drive for another team. But they were, you know, Brabham were eager to understand what Williams had, and Williams are, you know, eager to get me back in and get some feedback. So we did the the test on a Tuesday, I think it was, and I went round in the Williams on race tyres 1.2 seconds quicker than what I'd achieved on qualifying tyres in the Brabham.
1: Wow. So
0: that, <laughs> that really gave me an insight into oh dear, I, I made a mistake. <laughs> you know, this is going to be a long season. So, you know, that just shows you, in terms of machinery, you know the differential. You're only as good as what you're driving, and you're, you know, you're only as good as your last race, so to speak. But you know, if you don't have the car underneath you, it doesn't matter who you are. You're not going to make up the difference. It just doesn't. So, you know, you might have a, a tenth or two, but when you get into half a second plus, that's not a driver adjustment and you know driver performance. That's a, that's a car.
1: And mm. um, was it a surprise that then Brabham didn't renew your contract for the the season after that? And you kind of left in a limbo, I guess. In, in no, they
0: didn't renew it because they didn't have any money, right? So you know, it, it was uh, the writing was on the wall, and and I and quite frankly, I wouldn't have stayed there anyway. So and I'd kind of already made up my decision not to stay there because you could see where it was heading. McLaren came knocking at the at the end of the season, and a guy called Joe Ramirez, a, a lovely guy, who was kind of like the you know, sort of team manager role a liaison guy at the time was sent down by Ron Dennis to come and find me so that we could have a meeting. And they offered me the, the test reserve role for the 92 season, which which I took on the basis that I'd sooner go and test and learn from, you know, the likes of a McLaren and work with Senna and Berger than do another season with the, the Brabham situation. Even though I loved it at Brabham with Yamaha and I scored Yamaha's first World Championship point, you know, which was a, was a lovely thing to be able to have done, and uh, you know, still stays with many of us who are part of those two organisations today. You know, doing the year with McLaren gave me another springboard to jump into the Ligier team the year after. So yeah, well, well served for me.
1: What was it like working with Ayrton Senna? It's quite known that he didn't like testing or he didn't kind of turn up to much testing. So I'm guessing he was relying on your on your on your feedback, really. I guess was he was he good to work with? Uh, I
0: mean, listen, he was. Senna was very detailed and very thorough, and and that was uh, clear to see. I already knew him obviously from competing against him in '91, but not to the same level. And it was clear to see, you know, how he thought about things and where he was going because he never used to really test during the winter. He'd go away and, you know, wouldn't come back until quite close to the season. But McLaren had employed me to do the test work. And, uh, you know, the, the days of Williams when I was there was kind of the first generation of like properly employed test and reserve drivers, development drivers. So when I went to McLaren, I had quite a A big remit on my shoulders and and we i remember it now we tested at silverstone and center actually turned up unannounced by mid-morning and stuck on some headphones and listened in to me in terms of feedback and what i was talking about with the car and looking at lap times and so forth and probably had about 25 30 minutes of listening in and that was really a situation of him understanding whether i was good enough for the job because he needed to have confidence In whether I could understand the car and whether I was relaying back information, and bizarrely, excuse me, bizarrely, our driving styles are very similar. So I applied the throttle in in very much the same way as Senna did. So we used to apply it in stages. Mm -hmm. So you look at the data back in driving days, you'd either have a V or a U, whereas like I would go in stages and I would, you know, induce understeer in a car because always used to get the rear of the car settled, and very much the same as Senna. We so. So the setup of the car, I could drive a Senna setup, and he could drive mine. It was the same. Whereas Gerhard Berger was the opposite. He drove the car on the nose and, you know, literally needed the thing to turn in and the back end would come out and he'd correct it. And, and actually for me and Senna, we, we hated that way of driving. So so it worked for a benefit in terms of me doing the development work because it was all suited to the setup for him.
2: Just a quick comment, because obviously you've worked with both Williams and McLaren. And obviously both being British teams, they, they they do have different cultures and ways of working. What were the key differences between the during uh, the 90s?
0: So I probably would say, I mean, Williams, you know, back in that day was a fantastic engineering team with huge amount of uh, credentials against them in terms, you know, success. But at the same time, I think the difference was McLaren was all about attention to detail. And I think that's still one of the things that led them through their successful years. And... How can I put it? I think the McLaren organization just had a an air of confidence about it that there was no, you know, there was no sort of no in the vocabulary. It was like, you know, it doesn't exist. It's like we will find a solution and we will make sure that the attention to detail is is there at, at all levels. And, and they kind of took things to another, another level, and that was the difference. So at that stage, McLaren was, you know, on the cusp of going into that sort of era of like, nobody could beat them. I mean, they were unbeatable almost. And Williams were there and thereabouts. But Williams probably just had a little bit more of a sort of a smaller organisation feel to it, whereas McLaren had this big, you know, matrix of engineering in terms of, you know, whereas Williams are much more a sort of a solo voice. And, and McLaren was a little bit more of a group sort of induced like understanding like this is where we're going to head from an engineering point of view didn't always work out I mean when I went back there in 95 it's probably by many of the people at McLaren by their own admission is probably one of the worst cars that they ever designed and developed you know and I testified that from driving it so it was not a great car but you know, <laughs> on the whole you know most of the time McLaren produced a, a really good car but yeah I, I Williams I learned a huge amount I mean the, the amount of expertise that was there was incredible paddy Lowe was there then of course patrick head the great patrick head so there's a huge amount of talent so yeah, as a young driver absorbed a huge amount of information
1: yeah there's you've got some iconic names that you've kind of worked under you've got ron dennis frank williams patrick head as you've said already adrian newey i'm sure was was a designer during your your, your reign in the team
0: yeah i've been around where adrian's been around i mean again you know people like that very very special people and uh you know not not many people can hold a candle to them so you know, to learn from those sort of guys in pit lane and to have sort of an understanding of how things get done at that level yes always is going to stand you in good stead so yeah.
1: with with one more demanding the other i mean i can i can imagine ron being very strict with you or being very strict in general
0: <laughs> they're all demanding because that's you know expectations are such that they they want 100% from you if not more but at the same time there's a way of going about it and all of them had the different nuances in the way that they applied pressure or the way that they felt that you needed to absorb it or rise to it. So yeah, I wouldn't always agree when you're when you're sort of wearing a different hat, so to speak, excuse me. Sometimes it doesn't always work on the other side, but you know that that's that's just life. We're always gonna have a difference of opinion.
2: Yeah, and obviously you were Williams before at McLaren, but then you went to Ligier in ninety three. And was that where the the friendship with Martin Brundle began or did it begin before because it's been well documented that you two have always been been close
0: no I mean myself and Martin obviously come from the same neck of the woods in the UK as we all know we've got very similar names
1: (laughs) really Uh, (laughs) yeah
0: so we actually knew each other from sports cars I mean you know Martin was a big name in sports cars driving for Jaguar I'd just come into the into the fray, and also when I was doing my test work with Williams, you know, we'd see each other then as he was a Grand Prix driver as well and a little bit of overlap. we have been teammates at, at Brabham, obviously, as well. I think the Ligier side, I mean, I was the first British, you know, English driver ever to be signed by Ligier in the, in the history of the French team, and bearing in mind that most of the sponsorship came from the French government-backed companies, so, you know, it was a big, big thing at the time. But a lot of that was driven off the back of, again – work that I was doing at McLaren and the the speed of my testing and the the feedback side and also my relationship that I'd struck up with Renault when they were at Williams so you know lots of these little things relationships that sort of make you know ends come together maybe another 12 months 18 months down the line they, they all count
2: is that what helped Martin get the Benetton drive uh, was it through Tom Walkinshaw?
0: Yeah, for, I mean, listen, I can't say for sure that that would have been a wholeheartedly the differential in the decision to have Martin, but I'm sure that it would have been advantageous to have somebody in your camp. Obviously, Tom knew Martin very, very well. And then Tom had had a huge amount of success with Martin as his driver. So, you know, uh, without a doubt, I'm sure it was an added benefit. So like everything, you know, when somebody understands you and understands what you can do and what they, what you've delivered together... You know, you're always going to try and hedge your bets. You know, why wouldn't you? So, you know, that that's, that's something that works even in today's world. You know, people always say to, you know, we manage a lot of young drivers. You know, you're going to meet all the same people on the way down as what you do on the way up. So make sure that, you know, those relationships have got some foundation.
1: And it's not just Martin Brundle, is it? There's, a, there's the whole Rat Pack that the, that you've been kind of titled. Uh, loads of British drivers, uh, you, Johnny Herbert, uh, Perry McCarthy, who we've had on the podcast ourselves. There's there's, there's, a, there's a whole pack of you that kind of meet up every year, don't they?
0: yeah there's a rat pack that exists and we all try and meet up every year you're right we didn't meet up through the pandemic so that was quite tricky but uh, we had a virtual meetup so that was all right saved on a taxi fare on our way home <laughs> so yeah we, we still try and meet every year and it's quite you know it's kind of cool kind of good to uh, same old stories but they keep getting bigger and bigger every year but there you go
1: <laughs> you don't, can't say you over exaggerate surely Surely not. Comes, yeah. Comes of age. Can you tell us about the inspiration to your helmet design? I've got a, a question from one of our fans, actually, the, to ask us, ask you about the the helmet and the will to win, the phrase that you had on the back. The
0: will to win is from a late grandfather who was a huge fan of mine, and it was always a a tagline that he used to sort of say to me. You know, you, you need the will to win. That's 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 first and foremost. That's what you got to have to succeed. So I just thought, you know, it would be nice just to sort of share that emotional statement and have it with me at all times. So I I put it on my helmet and not many guys, you know, back then anyway, were putting anything sort of expression wise on the crash helmets and making a statement. So, you know, I, I'm pretty sure from that point on, I don't think there was any helmet that I had that didn't have it on, you know, for out. So they've, they've all had it. And the MB on the top was something that, you know, I, as I was coming through those junior years and then thinking one day that maybe the reality of F1 might be there as I got a little bit further up the uh, the ladder, always used to see Monaco and see those photographs, those famous shots of the the Lowe's hairpin and the the overhead camera shot down into the cockpit of a race car. Mm. You know, you can see everything there, the cockpit, the driver, and they see this big blank space on top of the helmet. So I thought, wow, why don't I just advertise myself? And I put my initials. And uh, you know, I said, one day I'm going to see that photograph of me as a Grand Prix driver with, with MB on the top of the helmet, and that will be there. So that's really what I did for that that side of things. I just used that space to a little bit of self-advertising. So, yeah, a few drivers have taken it now. Yeah. Even Mike Conway, I managed today. You know, Mike's been with me over 17 years, and Mike's got MC on the top of his helmet. So I keep ribbing him to say, where did you get the inspiration from? <laughs>
1: Yeah, you certainly see a lot of them now with their initials on top of it. Definitely, you've inspired a generation. <laughs>
0: yeah, I should, have, I should have put a patent on it. There you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's go back to your Formula One career. In terms of you drove for McLaren then alongside Mika Hakkinen in '95, was it was it great to be back, kind of behind the wheel of a McLaren, but actually in the racing seat at that point?
0: Yeah, I mean, I didn't go back there again. I'd done Tyrrell. Tyrrell run out of money again. So, you know, again, stories like this that in today's world, you know, I'm sure Connor's sitting there thinking like a Grand Prix team running out of budget, you know, it just doesn't happen. But uh, back then, it used to happen quite a lot, you know. So, and that's probably a reason why there's only 10 teams on the grid these days because they're well funded. But uh, it was a situation that Tyrrell didn't have any, any money and they needed a lot of sponsorship. I didn't have any sponsorship. I was a salaried racing driver. So, I wasn't about to go and change the ways of going racing. And again, McLaren came knocking on the door and said, look, if you haven't got a solid drive sorted out, come back to us again. Uh, we want you to do all of our development work and be the reserve. I didn't really quite understand the dynamics of the relationship they had with Nigel at the time and didn't didn't know that maybe there was some possibility of being in a race seat. But that obviously, as we know now, as the history books say, that kind of changed early part of the season. And Nigel departed and I took over. So you know, worked to my advantage, but yeah, great, great time. Was it the best car? Was great to work with Mercedes-Benz as a, you know, coming back into Formula One as a as an engine manufacturer, and and we delivered as best we could, both myself and Mika, and Mika obviously had a tough time towards the back end of the season with his accident. Mm. But, you know, those those situations, there's always going to be something in the background, like niggling whether you're going to be there for the long term. And I kind of knew that I wasn't going to be there for the second year. I knew something else would be on the cards. So, you know, that's when I made a decision to pack my bags and go to America.
2: Did Ron have you on a a race by race deal in 95? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, that's correct. And that was one big argument I constantly had. Yeah, you know, He felt that I would operate better under the pressures of going Grand Prix to Grand Prix to get the most out of me. And obviously, from my side, I'm like, I don't really feel that's correct. I'd like to have a, you know, a solid contract with you having the confidence in me to say that I'm there for the rest of the season. Mm. And and we had many an argument on that one. But, yeah, you know, as I say, everybody has their own views. I did stay there the whole season, but just under the pressures of running race to race, which wasn't ideal, but water under the bridge now.
1: Yeah. And, and in between all your kind of times within and kind of moving around the the Formula One world, you actually went to Le Mans for Peugeot and won Le Mans itself.
0: Yeah. So in 92, yeah, I can say that I had a 100% win record that year because I only did one race and we won it. So, so that was <laughs> kind of cool. But yeah, very, very happy to have that on the CV. Worked underneath Jean Todd and great teammates of like Derek Warwick and Yannick Dalmas. So you know, it was again. It was a case of having some insight from understanding what was going on. I was at McLaren. McLaren were already talking to Peugeot about engine supply for, I think it was two seasons after that. I think they came in in '94. You know, those conversations were up and running, and and got asked a question like, you know, are are you available? I so said, of course. I mean, as long as McLaren allow me to do it because of the relationship that was going to happen, then you know, it was an open door. So. Great to go and do Le Mans, fantastic race, love the event, and to come away with a win in France for a French manufacturer made it actually quite special. So, yeah, yeah, good memories.
1: Is that your greatest motorsport achievement, do you think? Yeah, Is that one you hold highest in regard?
0: No, I wouldn't say it's the highest. I, I think, you know, I could go back to the early days of starting out I had some great achievements in, in what I personally feel were rewarding scoring your first world championship point in a Bramham Yamaha was an achievement for me, bearing in mind points used to go down to sixth place back then, you know, they didn't have a yeah. top 10. So, you know, and, and there was a lot more cars on the grid. So I think, you know, that in its own right was an achievement for me. Winning IndyCar races on all three disciplines of circuit, road course, street course and oval again. But yeah, Le Mans up there for sure because it is a special race and there's not that many guys that actually have got their names on the side of the trophy. So yeah, quite uh, quite a nice thing to have.
2: I'd like to bring it also to 94, because you touched on your time at Tyrrell. Obviously, they didn't have a lot of money at the time, but you worked with Harvey Possessweight, if memory serves correctly. So what was that like working with him as well, another great technical genius of the sport?
0: You must have read a lot of books, guy, because you, you, your memory wouldn't serve you because you wouldn't have been around. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: told, I told you he's sport. a historian.
0: He's a, <laughs> he's a historian. <laughs> yeah, so I worked with Harvey, and Harvey was at Tyrrell... Off the back of doing some, you know, some great stuff with Ferrari. And we also had another guy there who was, uh, it was a very good engineer guy, a guy called Mike Gascoigne, who went on to do several things with uh, some organizations as well. So yeah, strong technical team, but hindered by lack of budget and resource and development. And again, I was back with Yamaha and and scored Yamaha's only Grand Prix podium. So we scored the world championship point to start with and scored their only podium. I think maybe then Damon went on to do something with Yamaha after that, if my memory serves me correctly, but we scored the first podium. So great days, just frustrating. For example, like Monza Grand Prix, the brake disc exploded. And it exploded because they didn't have enough budget to replace the brakes. So they kept skimming the carbon brakes to renew them, to give them a clean surface to the point that there was no more material left. So lo and behold, they would explode and you'd be off the track and then hit the barrier and it costs more money than what it would to replace the brakes. So, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that you're up. About. And also a little bit tough for me then because there was no sort of balancing performance ballast back then. You know, the the weight of the driver and car was at the stage where if you were a heavy driver and I, you know, my nature, I'm quite a fixed set driver. I've got shoulders on me and I'm a little bit bigger set than most drivers a bit like jockeys and I'm not. <laughs> so, you know, although I was in shape and I was always like Mansell, you know, I was always one of the heavier guys just because bone structure wise, that was me. But, you know, my driver weight didn't get sort of taken into consideration like it does in today's world. So I was always up against the armour that was about 58 kilos and I was about
1: <laughs> 72
0: kilos. <laughs> so, you know, it was like driving around with another five gallons of fuel on the car all the time. So it's just lap time. So, you know, trying to make up that deficit was always going to be difficult.
1: You can't fight genetics, though, unfortunately. <laughs> it's one of those you things. You can't fight got.
0: genetics. No, you're right. You, you can't do that. So it is what it is. But I think, you know, it's it's much fairer today in terms of the way they do it. But, uh, you know, back then, that was one of the issues and one of the considerations. So, you know, it was very frustrating when you looked at lap times. And, mm. you know, you'd look at a trace and you'd just see, you know, acceleration doing this. And, mm. you know, there's nothing more you can do about it. I mean, I am who I am. And that's the weight of me. And, you know, yeah, at times I wish I was 58 kilos, but it was never going to happen.
1: <laughs> I'm with you there. I'm with you there, Mark. Don't worry. Do you think it was a hindrance to the fact that you went, that was, there was no consistency after for year on year for you? Do you think that's maybe what hindered your career a little bit? Having a, a year here, a year there, mm-hmm. Tyrrell, Brabham, M- McLaren.
0: Yeah, you know, without a doubt. I did 61 Grand Prix, but I was lucky to to keep getting a seat to go and do that. But yes, I was frustrated that I couldn't stay in one place and actually grow.
1: Mm.
0: You know, that's again, differences in where we are today. I mean, you know, you see drivers in a team for five, six, seven seasons, you know, that would have been a luxury. I mean, to sign a two year contract back in my day was a big feat and a big achievement. But uh, yeah, if I look back, I think it would have been nice to have been able to stay somewhere and, and work with the same group of people and and develop internally but we never got that luxury, so you know it is what it is. And to say those days are long gone, so I'm not going to lose too much sleep over it.
1: <laughs> and and so you shouldn't, because you you were very successful elsewhere. You, are, you move on to to CART or as we call it now IndyCar. Tell us a bit about your career over there in the states.
0: So actually, I was I was finishing up McLaren, and I was due to go to Sauber. That was right. where I was headed to stay in F1. And I had like a a heads of agreement. Ford Cosworth wanted me to be part and parcel of the driver lineup within Salva. And and it was all going in the right direction until a guy called Dieter Mataschitz became a shareholder in Salva and decided that he was going to have an input on the driver lineup. And the conditions of that input were that he wanted somebody that had won a Grand Prix. And the only guy that was around at the time that had won a Grand Prix but wasn't employed... Was Johnny Herbert. So Johnny got the seat, took the drive, and I kind of got a little bit despondent at that stage, going like, you know, I've had enough of this year to year stuff. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go to America. And I called on, you know, again, relationships from back in 1986 when I was at Reynard and spoke to the guys, Adrian and Rick at Reynard, said, What's the situation in America I'd like to come across? Mm. They were very uh, supportive and put me in touch with the Pac West racing team. And also what came with me was Mercedes-Benz, when I was at McLaren 95, were very appreciative of what I'd done and, and the work I'd done for the year. And at the end of it, knowing that I couldn't stay with them, said to me, we will assist you by giving you an engine deal, basically a lease deal for the engines, to take to an IndyCar team, if you wish.
1: Oh, wow. Uh, which
0: probably had about a $2 million value attached to it so i walked to a team and basically said look i'm coming and i can bring myself but actually i'm going to bring you an engine deal if you want to use it because it's on my back with mercedes-benz so that's that's how i put the deal together and uh, we couldn't use mercedes in the first season in the indycar or cart as it was rightly called then the championship auto racing teams because they had an, an agreement with cosworth with ford engines but as people will now you know now know and saw back then that we then took to Mercedes-Benz and, and actually that season that we had Mercedes was a, a successful one because it won three three races for the team and, and took the first win for Pack West as well.
1: Wow. How kind of receptive were they to you over there in the States were they kind of oh this, who's this European guy coming over to our, to our tournament or were they quite accepting quite open-armed oh. to you?
0: No, they were they were open-arms I mean they just had Nigel Mansell be there so I mean you know they they'd kind of seen a Brit come into the fray and there's been other Brits that have gone across. You know, not forgetting, I think when I won the Fontana 500 mile race in an oval, I was the fourth British guy to win. I think we had, I think with Jim Clark, Graham Hill Nigel Mansell, then myself. Mm. So, you know, it was a small group of Brits, but there's been Brits going across the pond for a long, long time.
2: So across your career, you know, racing at Le Mans in the World Sports Guy Championship in Formula One, where, when would you say was your peak as a driver when you got in a car and you were at your fastest and your most experienced?
0: Was a good question. I would, I would probably say there was a latter part of my F1 career and then the early stages of my IndyCar career because I think at that point, age combined with experience and, and an understanding and confidence within myself probably uh, you know, was my most stable time in terms of what I needed to do on the track. And I think probably what a lot of people didn't quite realize was that, you know, I was I was already a father at 21 years old. So you know, I had the birth of my, my first son. Mm. So and I was trying to make an international career for myself. So a lot of decisions that I made weren't always made for me and my career. They were made for what was most beneficial for me to be supportive and responsible for my family. So, you know, it was a situation sometimes maybe, oh, well, there's that situation where it's going to pay you to be a professional driver, but actually mm-hmm. it's not going to be quite as competitive as what you would probably want. But I had to go and, you know, provide. So yeah, you know, of course. Th- these things that people don't quite get, you know, the, you might automatically think that it's all slanted one way and it's performance, 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 where, you know, in many ways it should be if you have the opportunity, but that wasn't quite the way that I had to go about doing things. So, you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. I love my two sons dearly. But what I'm saying is, you know, there's other factors that are behind the scenes that sometimes people won't comprehend. And, you know, there there are things that if I look back, you know, would I have done something differently? Maybe if I didn't have the responsibilities of having my first son. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm also looking back and saying I wouldn't change it for the world because, you know, I did what I did and I am where I am. So, and I'm still in one piece, just.
2: Yeah, I've heard, I've heard the saying though, Mark, that having kids makes you a couple of attempts slower. Is that true or is or it always the same?
0: No, <laughs> it's false because I'd, I'd actually i'd actually say it's the other way around to say like having kids actually makes you quicker because you know you need to go and earn some money
1: <laughs> so yeah. I, I, yeah. Don't,
0: I don't think it slows you up by any means you know it, you know if that would have been the case I' would have just knocked you on the head and walked away and you know and, and gone and done nine till five but it, it i think it it makes you it makes you grow up fast and it also makes you hungry in terms of understanding that like look it's not just me now it's like i've got my wife and my child and i've got to be responsible and i've got to go and do what i need to do it just so happens that my office was a cockpit of a race car because that's how i had to earn my living so you know i i don't think it slows you up if anything you know it motivates you to go faster maybe the other way probably (laughs) put yourself on the edge a bit too much but there you go
1: well, you did have some successes, as I was just mentioning before. That you came second in 2003 in the, at the Le Mans, but only second to your team teammates in, in the other Bentley car. Was there a massive celebration for that one? Was it? Was it? A, a, I, I can imagine. A team with two cars coming first and second must mean the world to yeah. kind of a manufacturer and whatnot.
0: I mean, it was it was big because it was Bentley and, a, and mm. a, a very you know big brand and a huge amount of heritage at Le Mans. To be a Bentley boy is you know is, is lovely to be able to say that, but frustrating for us because we were actually on track in terms of lap time with the fastest combination of car and drivers. Regretfully, we got let down by a couple of almost like one pound fifty parts, you know, uh. little battery terminals that fouled on the battery that made us have to you know pit. Two times more than what we should have. So it took us out of sequence and lost us a lot of lapse mm. and time. But you know, outside of that, yeah, that that was the one that got away. So there's always going to be a lump in the throat with that one.
1: Oh yeah, agonizingly close. And then you moved into punditry for ITV. Now, in the UK, we hadn't really got much of it in terms of F1 pre-show and post-show and ITV really brought that in with their coverage when they started doing it how did you did you take to it like a duck to water were you did you like being in front of the camera and kind of talking about Formula Um, One in the world or
0: I'm not sure about me liking being in front of the camera or whether the camera liked having it you know with me and Vision but I think several people would probably vote against that but I I'd done a little bit of TV work previously actually when I was in America running around in, in IndyCar on a couple of occasions, I got asked by ITV to fill in for Martin because Martin went and did Le Mans and right. they needed somebody to, to go and fill in. So I, I was very lucky to work alongside Murray Walker. So, you know, great uh, great opportunity to work alongside the legend. But mm. I enjoyed it. I didn't have any training for it. I didn't also have the vocabulary as well. So I'm not as eloquent as Martin. Can't string words together quite as well as him. But if you, if you wanted to get the, you know, the 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 black taxi drivers sort of information in a way that they would understand and you know that was, that was me I'm your man you know I I, I could quite easily in that way I remember there was I think the blunderisms they were called or something yeah, and there was a there was a little cartoon that got put about it some, some even I had some great laughs about it but listen it was seven odd years of live TV and seven years of working with you know my good mate Martin Brundle. Mm-hmm. And all the team at ITV, Steve Ryder and guys like that, and we still see each other now. Was it ever going to be my career, and finishing my career in that role? Probably not. That's not quite me, but at the same time, you know, it was something that I wouldn't swap. I enjoyed it, and at the same time, it uh, it was it was fortunate enough to give me a, you know, a platform to be around Grand Prix and uh, still be involved in the sport that I love.
1: Yeah, it must be nice, at least to just even go to all the races, anyway. You know, that's a benefit, I guess.
0: Yeah, it was nice to go without the pressures, uh, you know. But at the same time, you know, there was enough pressure going on when, when you're doing live TV. You know, it's you know, once you've said it, it's gone, you know. Uh, <laughs> there's no, so yeah, but yeah, I, I mean, it doesn't, you know, it's not like today where we have got Sky and you know, almost like a twenty-four-seven channel. So mm. you're, you know, we didn't have social media back then, so. Your profile off the back of it wouldn't be as big as what it is today. Mm. So you know that that that's kind of a differential in in eras. But at the same time, you know, I I did enjoy it. It was a lot of fun, and the same a lot of fun because I got to work with a lot of good friends.
1: Another part of the relationship with Martin Brundle, you actually started a management company up with him, which you are still at today. Well, you still own today because I, I Martin moved away to focus on his television career, whereas you focus on the management. So, so what do you do management wise nowadays? What? So, we,
0: we, yeah, you're right, we started the company at 2MB, which was myself and Martin Brundle. So, quite an original name, a little, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
0: Little, little, little bit cheesy, but there you go. We used it, and it was all about managing drivers' careers. We, we were both at the BRDC, mm. and uh, I think Martin. The chairman, I was in a board and at that stage, you know, there was some funding that was going into young drivers and we kept looking at it and going like, why don't we have someone around who's advising these guys and girls where to go spend their money and, you know, try and get the best deal that they can. So that was, that was really the sort of, you know, first stages of of starting the driver management company. As you just said, Martin progressed and gone on to be the, you know, the the legend as he is in, in Formula One television And I was always a little bit more sort of the the ducker and diver and wheeler dealer. So, you know, it was was always an attraction for my side to go and do a bit more of the the business side. And we are where we are today. We've got Mark Blundell Partners, MVP. We manage 10 drivers. So the likes of Mike Conway, double world champion and Weck LeMond winner, Tom Blumquist, IMSA champion, Daytona 24 winner, Jake Hughes, McLaren Formula E. Jordan Love and Sports Cars, Gary Paffitt, we managed for 17 years, DTM, two-time champ, now sporting director at McLaren FE and Extreme E. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got some great people that we, we look after. And that's an enjoyable part of the business for me. But the business is much more than that now. We've got digital marketing events, partner program with 27 blue-chip corporates. So, you know, it's it's, it's not all motorsport which is good, right. but at the same time, you know, there's enough motorsport there to, to keep me happy.
1: Yeah, I, I, I suppose you'd prefer to just kind of remain with all the the, the motorsport stuff. The other stuff is obviously just good for for, for the back pocket, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, this, uh, we get our fix now with having the drivers and we've also got our British touring car team. So we've got Jake Hill, who's one of our guys as well, that uh, competes for us at MB Motorsports. So, you know, that mm. that's a good thing to have 10 weekends of the, of the year and don't have to travel too far for it. So that's quite nice.
2: Yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of Jake. Actually, he had a good season last year, but he's a, a little aggressive, into a good driver. I like him.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a he's a racer and a terrier, so you know we like that on Sunday afternoons. So there's a lot of exciting things coming in the future on that side. So yeah, watch this space, as they say.
1: Well let's turn our minds now to to modern formula 1 and just your opinions on on the current flock and the current state of, of the sport itself. Are you what, what do you think of the modern era of F1 so the new cars and obviously what liberty media have done for the sport over the last few years?
0: I think they've done a great job. I mean, you know, definitely the marketplace is much stronger than what it was. I'm not sure still whether the product could be a little bit more entertaining on Sunday afternoon. I think, you know, we've had a lot of races that have been fantastic, then we've had a few that have still been processional mm. And I Kind of feel as a purist, it would be nice just to have that, you know, that sort of that outcome that can't be predicted. I think it's always always tough when you get in a sport and you always can, you know, predict the outcome and the result. That that really should never be on the cards. Just saying that, yeah, I think it's it's grown nicely and you've got some huge talents on the track. You've still got some great brands out there as well. So, yeah, I don't think Formula 1 has been in such a good place for a long time financially and, and awareness-wise. Yeah, I think most people will know F1 these days.
2: Uh, yeah, I've I've got to ask. Currently in Formula One, well, obviously we've been always been hearing a lot about Verstappen and Hamilton recently in their rivalry. I've got to ask: put them both in the same car. Who do you think wins?
0: Well, you, you're kind of saying who do I think the quickest driver is at the moment, or
2: if they were in equal equal machinery,
1: if you could somehow get them to turn up to a racetrack and put them in the same car, who do you think would win the race?
0: As we are today, you know, and I'm and I'm all about like you know today. 2023 then i would still say that out and out one lap would be max right if you said to me you know if i had to pick two drivers in terms of like having a a collective of experience and speed and you know an understanding of how to go for a season and get the job done then i'd I'd have to have max in one of them but then it'd be a hard press between hamilton and alonso
1: right so
0: that would that would be my you know, my fantasy league picks. But out out and out lap, I'd still put Max on there. But, you know, collectively for a season and who do I want to get the job done over the course of that season? then the other two would be for that other car alongside.
1: And and what's the difference between a modern driver? So drivers that drive these days and and drivers maybe that drove in the 90s?
0: I think about 15 million dollars <laughs> so yeah, listen, I, I it's a difficult question to answer. I think, you know, drivers are different generations and eras. Yeah, you know, the 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 environment's different, you know, the responsibilities and the pressures are different. Today's drivers, I think, are much more engineering led in what they need to understand permutation-wise and what they can do with a car, you know on the steering wheel, so to speak, in terms of what they're doing lap to lap. The input on the on the steering side is even different. You know, I watch a modern day Grand Prix driver and it's almost like it's me going down the road to go home. You know, it's like just very smooth inputs, not a lot of chatter on the wheel, not really fighting too much. But saying that, they've probably made five changes on one lap. You know, I wouldn't have had the brain capacity to do five changes on one lap. I was too busy hanging on to dear life at the steering wheel. So, yeah, it just... <laughs> a difference in 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 driving but not to say that one era is better than the other i think you know there's uh, there's some fantastic talent out there today so you know it's it's still great to see
1: good good and one question we ask every single person that comes onto our show if you had to advise our audience of one race that they absolutely must go and watch live be that you know in formula one be that le mans be that you know any somewhere in america that you've driven for atmosphere, for the whole event, for, you know, the, the city to kind of enjoy while you're there, what race would you tell our fans to go, to, that they absolutely have to go and see?
0: It would, be, it would be one race that I never got to do, which which kills me, but it would be the Indianapolis
1: 500. Wow, yeah, absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's, the atmosphere must be huge there.
0: It's the only place I've ever been with there's 400,000 people, and at the beginning of the race, you can hear a pin drop. So, yeah, it's, it's quite special. There's something... Very, very, very special about that whole environment. So if you ever get the chance, Indianapolis, uh, yeah, 500, I mean, for sure. Indy 500 would be the place to go.
1: Excellent. Yeah, especially at the moment.
0: You know, the dollar's good, so make it happen.
1: <laughs> That's true. That is true, very, very true. Well, thank you very much for coming to speak to us today, Mark. It's, it's been an absolutely pleasure to to kind of hear about your history and, and, and have a chat to you.
0: You're welcome, guys. Pleasure. All the best.
1: Just before you go, we are the Everything F1 podcast. You can find us all on our social platforms. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. You can also find us on our website, www.everythingf1.com. And of course, hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast streaming service to get all of our latest podcasts in your earlobes as soon as they drop. I have been Jay Siller alongside Connor. Thanks very much for chatting us to us, Connor, today.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Mark. Thank you for coming on.
1: One last time to Mark. Thank you very much for being our special guest. We'll see you all next week where we speak to Chris McCarthy for our next podcast. So see you
2: there. Bye-bye.